Hi, I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host of One in Ten. In today's episode, Taking Stock, the Plant and Child Abuse Deaths Five Years On, I speak with three different guests. First, Amy Harfeld, the coordinator for the Coalition to End Child Abuse Deaths, and then two investigative reporters, Leah Russell and Caitlin Andrews of the Bangor Daily News. Nearly a decade ago, a coalition of national organizations, including NCA, began strategizing about what could be done to reduce and eliminate child abuse fatalities in the U.S. Eventually, we were successful in getting a bill passed, one that would establish a national congressional commission to end child abuse fatalities. They issued their report five years ago in 2016. Now, five years later, we look back at what have been the successes and challenges of that work. We wanted to see what's changed and sadly not changed in some cases in our national efforts to reduce child abuse fatalities. And we wanted to examine how efforts to reform have played out at the state level. Has the needle moved at all on child abuse fatalities over the past five years? What's next in states transforming their child welfare systems to prevent system-involved deaths? And what's yet to be done to ensure that children are safe and protected? I know you'll be interested in hearing what progress we've made and not made over those five years. Take a listen. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So I want to take a little walk down memory lane, maybe for a minute. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with all that has gone on with child abuse fatalities in the U.S., I kind of want to walk back to the point in 2016 where the Congressional Commission to Prevent and End Child Abuse Fatalities had issued a report with a raft of recommendations, most of them for federal action, about what should be done to really reduce child abuse fatalities in the U.S., And I just want you to reflect for a moment on where we've come since, you know, what has gone well from that? What recommendations seem to have been taken to heart? What are those things that are very much in progress? And where have we just not made any traction whatsoever? Happy to answer those questions. So thank you for having me. It's it's, um, as, as grim as the topic is, I really enjoy speaking about this because the biggest takeaway that I have from all of the work of the Federal Commission to Eliminate Child Abuse and Neglect Fatalities is that most fatalities are preventable. And so that really drives a continuing dedication to working on it because armed with that knowledge, there is always work to be done. Trailing from the recommendations of the commission in 2016, there were 114 recommendations. Some of them were around leadership, some of them were around data, and some of them were around a sort of a public health framework. And what I would say is that in the years since the commission's report, the recommendations around helping to frame fatality prevention as a public health issue and a multi-system issue that extends far beyond CPS has probably taken hold more than anything else. In fact, we have not only seen pieces of legislation pass in Congress that are consistent with that framework, But we have also seen states come to that realization and make steps to recognize that fatality prevention goes beyond CPS and requires the cooperation and collaboration of agencies that intersect with CPS but are beyond it. And what we have in front of us right now, it's a very exciting moment in congressional legislation because the reauthorization of the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act is upon us. And the bill that the Senate has passed on a bipartisan basis actually includes a whole new title dedicated to fatality prevention and reflecting almost verbatim what the commission said about framing fatalities as a public health issue that requires the cooperation of multiple agencies and data sources. And with any help, that will be moving and really helping not only to ultimately prevent fatalities, but really help to create a shared responsibility between players such as Department of Justice, um, even the Social Security Administration, CMS, HRSA, um, and and multiple agencies that all really need to play, Department of Defense, all need to play a role in fatality prevention and are doing so much more than before. Along with that, I would say that the weakest area of follow through from the commission's recommendations have been around data collection and collaboration. 
So what we've seen is that it's it's a, a culmination of, I would say, three forces that make collecting the most accurate, comprehensive, and comparable data available on fatalities and near fatalities. The first challenge is that federal law articulating those requirements is partially weak and partially ambiguous. Um, the federal law that requires states to disclose and report on their fatalities and near fatalities are also underfunded, which makes the role of oversight and enforcement challenging for the federal government. And the third is, is really that there, there really isn't any oversight and enforcement of existing law. So for example, in 2018, the Family Services Improvement and Innovation Act actually required already for CPS to collect and submit data on fatalities from multiple data sources, including from coroner's offices and medical examiners um, and law enforcement offices. But to my knowledge, up to this point, that has not been done. So we still have a lot of work to do around the data gathering and sharing um, to create the best information that we have. And of course, the better data we have, the more strategic and surgical our approaches to prevention can be. So one of the things that I'm just wondering is what you're seeing, you were talking about states, and I do think that states often innovate ahead of the federal government in some ways, especially on sort of child abuse prevention and intervention activity. I'm just wondering what you are seeing in states that's encouraging to you. Sure. So I helped along with the Office of Within Our Reach and the Alliance for Strong Children and Families to publish a report about two years after the commission issued their final recommendations that actually tracked the progress of every state in implementing the commission's recommendations over the first two years. And that was very encouraging because what we saw was that every state um, had taken on some of the implementation challenges. And of course, nothing in the report is mandatory. States didn't have to do anything as a result. But we saw over 180 adoptions of some piece of the recommendations of the commission across all states. And some states were really doing a lot. I think I would highlight three three states that have come up with really innovative approaches that are consistent with fatality prevention recommendations. The first I will I will flag is Florida. Shortly after the commission wrapped up its work, Florida really beefed up its website and data sharing on all, all aspects of child welfare, including fatalities. And I don't know if there is a state that does a better job of collecting information, publishing it quickly in a way that both validates the public's need to know and respond to the news, but also does not run afoul of any confidentiality rules or laws, even when there is a pending criminal investigation the breadth of their data, the ease of use, and the way that it's publicly available have really created a gold standard for transparency um, and availability of data around fatalities. So that's really to be commended. The second state that I think has, has really taken up something important, one of the commission's top 10 recommendations was for all states to do a deep dive into their past years of fatality data and to come up with a multidisciplinary fatality prevention plan that responds to that and really helps the state to dig in to the best fatality prevention approach for that state. And I would say that most of the threads that run through fatality prevention can be generalized, but every state has its own particular circumstances around you know, whether there's a higher concentration of water-related deaths or sleep-related deaths or opiate-related deaths or non-relative-related deaths. And so we, we do need to look at the state-specific information as well as the general trends. In addition to the commission recommending that, the Family First Services and Prevention Act um, has a, a little-known provision that actually requires states to describe to the federal government what they're doing to put together a comprehensive multidisciplinary fatality prevention plan. It doesn't actually require them to submit the plan and implement it, but it does require them to articulate how they're going to do so. So those two things in combination really are putting the heat on states to take action to implement those and Texas, as far as I know, has put together the most comprehensive and far-reaching plan that really does a great job of touching on various agencies that intersect with child welfare um, and being really thoughtful about responding to the state's data 
to put a plan in place that really focuses on what they know and on relying on multiple agencies. And then the last state that I will highlight that I think has done some really exciting work, which I think the commission really would have supported is the the work that New Hampshire and some other states have done around implementing and developing the use of warm lines. And the commission didn't speak to that per se, but the federal commission spoke a lot about primary prevention and a lot around supporting families so early on that their interactions with CPS become unnecessary. And that is really the best kind of prevention is to support families earlier on before they come to the attention of CPS and certainly before there's been neglect or abuse or a near fatality and God forbid, a fatality. And so New Hampshire really, I think they were geared up to do this anyway, but the pandemic really, I think, spurred the implementation of a really comprehensive warm line that exists a little bit outside the CPS framework that allows opportunities for those who come into contact with families or families themselves to reach out for supports with some of the issues that often get confused with poverty in our in our CPS system. So families who need supportive housing, who need placements and referrals to drug treatment facilities where they can keep their kids with them, families that need um, income supports or food supports. And so there is sort of this non-threatening, non-CPS avenue for families to get supports earlier on which address some of the risk factors that are associated with later instances of of near fatalities and fatalities, and hopefully can get that family support really before before anything happens that compromises the integrity of the family. You know, I want to move on to talk about one state in particular, which is Maine, that has had a sort of history of some reform in this area. They've had, I think, three waves now, maybe one in 2001, where there was a rash of child abuse fatalities that drove certain reforms. Um, Then in 2017, another set of child abuse fatalities that yielded a real financial investment, um, particularly in CPS, the hiring of something like, I don't know, 130 workers looking at worker caseload, other kinds of things, which is not to say that all child abuse uh, fatalities or system involved deaths. But I'm just wondering now, over the summer, there's been a rash of child abuse fatalities, a surprising number of deaths in a small state in one month, four. And there's a lot to parse there. But I'm just wondering your first impressions when you see a state that it's not that they've just completely ignored issues of child abuse fatalities. They have a track record and history of trying to make headway on them and address them. And yet here we sit with another um, group of child abuse fatalities, at least one of which we do know is a system involved death. And so when you think about that, you know, what do you think a state should be thinking about? What should their policymakers be thinking about? I think there's a sort of a sense of frustration there at the moment about, you know, we've made this massive investment and it doesn't seem to have paid off. What do you say to that? Although I'm not an expert in Maine per se, I'm I'm somewhat familiar with um, some of the history that you're talking about. And, you know, of course, it's frustrating for states when they feel like they're doing their best to invest resources to respond and it's not panning out in the data. First and foremost, what I can say about Maine is they historically have not done a great job of submitting their data on fatalities Mm -hmm. to the federal government. So there are, in fact, requirements in law that states disclose fatalities and near fatalities um, that occurred in their state every year. And there are several states that really haven't done so. In fact, I think that between at least since 2011, Maine might have reported any fatalities. Um, only in 2019, I think there were three reported. So there's a there's a definitely a problem with data collection and transmission, and you know um, adherence to, to federal law because certainly Maine is getting money, uh, not very much, but the no less than other states proportionately for their role in the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. So that is somewhat unique, and I think that you know previously there has been some critique leveled at the state for not always understanding the proper balance of respecting that line between the public interest and need to know about what's happening and the agency's desire to abide by confidentiality restrictions 
And some people I believe have, have leveled accusations that some of that is based in not really wanting to make the system too transparent because that would lead to further public outcry. Um, I can't confirm that, but that certainly has been written about. What I will say is that, you know, investing in caseworkers and case management and lower caseloads, it really is a critical piece of fatality prevention. As a former attorney myself in this field, I can tell you that, you know, there, there is a direct correlation between the quality of one's professional work and the number of people on one's caseload, and that's not to be sneezed at. And so I don't think it's a matter of them having made the wrong investment, but I think there are a couple of other things that really could be incorporated into that. And if I could think of two off the top of my head, the first is to coordinate in a more meaningful way with law enforcement and with other agencies that are serving families in need. And to not only coordinate services and share information, but to share data. Because what we know is that really, as you mentioned uh, you know, just a moment ago, only about half of the fatalities the federal government reports on are actually, um, the federal government numbers reflect only CPS-related fatalities. And what we know is there, that's only probably a half to maybe even a third of the actual fatalities that are occurring. So half, if not most of fatalities are occurring outside of CPS. And those families are interacting with other agencies. And so to approach this just from a CPS perspective is not really taking into consideration the importance of real-time data sharing and cross-system collaboration between other agencies. And then the other, the other thing I, I'll say, and, and I know that you have seen this over a long career doing this work, and we see these generations, these cycles repeat themselves, but Maine seems to have responded in a really powerful way to specific tragic instances and developed policy around specific cases. And what I can say, having done federal policy work for a very long time, is that it is rarely, if ever, strategic to develop policy reforms as a knee-jerk reaction to a high-profile fatality. And that's why it's so important to collect data from all the different agencies and across systems so that the efforts that are made and the, in and the investments that are made in prevention, which are hard fought, right? We don't have an overabundance of, of money to spend are really based on all of the information that's there and not just pinning it all on CPS and certainly not investing in policy that's related to one or two cases, but really the bigger picture over a longer period of time that recognizes where are the fault lines in the state, where are the cracks, um, and how can we come together to fix them um, and create a more solid foundation for families. I want to go back to something you were talking about a moment ago, which had to do with transparency and sharing the information that you can share in a proper way, those kinds of things. You know, Maine has an office of ombudsman. Its construction is a little unusual in that it's a nonprofit, I believe, and its role is sort of interesting in that they issue reports and those sorts of things, but it, it doesn't have quite the same... Um, I don't know if it's clout is the right word, but it's a little bit different in terms of having a direct line to policymakers in the way that you see in some states where it's right in the governor's office or something of that nature. And I'm just wondering, you know, whether there's something there that you think might be helpful. I read the last two reports um, from the Office of the Ombudsman for 2019 and 2020. And one of the things that I was really struck by, you know, sort of setting aside child abuse fatalities is that in many, many instances, their finding was, you're right, this was a problem, whatever happened with CPS, but it was too late to do anything about it. And that was their finding about, I don't know, 75% maybe of the things, the cases that they examined. And it was one of those where you're going, well, you know, it's a good thing to flag a problem, but it would be better to flag a problem you know, before it's too late to do anything about it. When you think about these offices of the ombudsman that have cropped up around the country, and there are you know, a number of states that have them, and they have a role, um, not just with CPS, but they do have some oversight role beyond that. I'm just wondering where you've seen them constructively used, in, particularly as it relates at looking at issues of child abuse fatalities. Are there any good examples out there? That is not something that I work with a lot, although I, I have been 
interested in and following more and more states as they get ombudsman offices together and determine what the scope of their work is going to be. But I think that those offices have the potential to play a role in in two areas that could help shine some light, right, on on some of the cases. And again, I know that some of the ombudsman offices, they work in very different ways and and are funded in different ways. So it's not going to be a one size fits all. But I feel like ultimately their job is to hold the agency accountable and to play a role that helps to bring our knowledge and understanding of what's happening in CPS systems and other systems in line with what they're supposed to be doing and what the public wants them to be doing and what their obligations are under federal law. And so there are two roles that I would hope that more and more of the ombudsman offices are playing. The first is helping to disabuse states' excuses and explanations for confusing confidentiality laws. You know, confidentiality laws were meant to protect victims, not perpetrators, and certainly not states. And so not only Maine, but 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 there are quite a lot of states that have taken advantage of some of the vagueness in federal law to avoid disclosing a lot of information because they they fear running afoul of confidentiality laws. And some of the ombudsman offices I have heard of have provided some technical assistance and some advice to states to, uh, in a public manner, um, so that those can no longer be used as excuses for not disclosing. And I feel like that's a really important role because once that has been clarified and analyzed in a way that's public and out there, it's, it's, it's much harder for the state to then fall back on saying, well, we couldn't release any information because, because we didn't want to run afoul of that. And the other role I feel like the ombudsman offices can play is to help facilitate some of those relationships between agencies that have responsibility for families that are having struggles with basic needs and with data sharing um, to facilitate some of those relationships. I can't tell you how many states have claimed over time that, you know, they, they want to share information but they don't know how and they, and they don't know the right way to, and they're just afraid to do it wrong. For example, Los Angeles developed a really impressive system called the eScars system that is a real-time data sharing platform that's used between law enforcement and CPS. So that if a 911 call came in around a child in distress the day before a CPS worker shows up, from a hotline call, they they know that each other were there and they're aware of what the outcomes of those cases were. And so the ombudsman offices really have a unique opportunity to to sort of facilitate some of those relationships and bring people together in sort of an objective and less threatening way to strategize around prevention along, I will say, with some of the um, child death review teams that are already in the states, often, you know, doing a lot of the analysis themselves and and also have a significant role to play. And of course, as NCA knows from all of your work across disciplines, there really is no substitute for bringing together various parties um, and stakeholders across platforms to strategize around prevention, because everybody has a different perspective and a different set of experiences and, and different expertise to lend to how they piece the puzzle together. And the more pieces we have to complete the picture, the better chances we have of putting in a plan to prevent each of the fatalities that we see just devastate communities. You know, as you look forward, and it's great to see what's happening with the Senate version of um, the CAPTA reauth but what other opportunities are there for federal public policy that could really, you know, help in this fight to reduce child abuse fatalities? Sure. Um, I would probably point to three things, some of which are underway and some of which are not. And the first, I'm probably going to sound like a, a broken wheel, but really our federal child abuse laws don't mean very much unless they're funded to be executed properly. So one of the things the Federal Commission to Eliminate Child Abuse and Neglect Fatalities found is that the money allocated to execute the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act is a joke. That's not a quote, but that was essentially the conclusion. And that the funding is just so fundamentally misaligned with what Mm -hmm. is required of states that sort of 
everyone is sort of in this situation where everybody knows it's not working and states aren't doing what they need to. And it's not being enforced because the federal government knows that states aren't getting enough money to execute it properly. And it's this cycle of failure, which which I'm hoping we can put an end to. And it's not just CAPTA. It's other federal laws as well. Really, all of the laws that go to strengthening families um, and preventing abuse and then treating abuse for, for children that are already system involved really need the resources that demonstrate our commitment to keeping kids safe and alive and families together. And that's not the case. The second thing I would point to is the opportunity that we've seen in safety science. There's been such interesting progress made with different organizations' approaches to, um, for example, heat mapping to identify families and children who were at highest need. And, And Michigan put in place a really interesting program during the pandemic to identify the households that were most likely to have a number of risk factors that ultimately end up with CPS and offered proactive support services, not by CPS, to 13,000 families to prevent the chances that they will be interacting with the system. And that was the result of some really interesting analytical tools and safety science approaches. I'm not a researcher, but I really respect people who know how to do that. And, And although there are very real risks in the context of race equity and racial justice and misusing those tools, I do believe that there is still a lot of untapped opportunity to use that science in a way that benefits families and keeps kids safer. And then the third thing I will focus that I you know, like to focus is on the media. There's a, a lot of need to continue to press for better coverage when things happen to families. Because what, what we've seen is this cycle of shame and blame and people getting fired over mistakes. And it could be that some of those decisions are necessary and appropriate. But the media itself, I think, could take a lesson from what the Federal Commission um, did in framing the issue and what our members of Congress have finally, after so many decades, taken to heart in contextualizing individual tragedies into a larger framework of supporting families and into a larger framework that's really less judgmental and more supportive and in a way more compassionate and understanding that very few fatalities are intended and each one that happens have have ripple effects throughout communities and throughout generations of families. And we need to, to approach our solutions with the voices and experiences of families that have been through something related And with all of the data that that I've talked about, how important it is, and with the resources to actually get it done right. So those are the dots I would connect to what I would like to see happen in the policy context moving forward. So our listeners are all child abuse professionals, and we've now talked about what policymakers should do and what states should do and those kinds of things. What is it that child abuse professionals should still be thinking about working toward and doing in the area of child abuse fatalities? Great question. So for those who are already working in the system, you know, it's a, I've, I've been working in this field for 25 years, and it's not easy. It's, it's incredibly inspiring to me and rewarding, but but it's not easy. And so my first thought is that child abuse professionals need to exercise a little, a little more self-care and self-compassion because it is no joke, the emotional toll this work mm. takes on you. And none of us can approach children and families or policy issues from the right mindset when we, when we don't take care of our own needs and try to um, respect the balance that we need to have in our lives between the, the urgency of these issues for the children and families involved, but in the context of a larger picture where we also have our own families and our own lives and interests. And when we let that take over, it really is a disservice to the work. My second thought is that I think that a lot of child abuse professionals, many, many of whom probably are already doing this, really could take a lesson from what NCA does because within child abuse prevention and treatment, I myself was an attorney for many years who represented the agency for some time and also represented children for a number of years and then represented parents as well. And in all of those years of legal practice, it was pretty infrequent that there was an opportunity to collaborate with other stakeholders involved in serving children and families who ended up in family court. And I would have really benefited from the opportunity to sit around a table 
and talk about how to connect the dots and collaborate and share information. And so I, I think that NCA really offers a unique example to the larger community of the importance and value of sharing information, not only within disciplines, but also within Congress. You know, one of the top recommendations of the commission was to hold hearings across committees of jurisdiction in child welfare. And Congress seems to have had zero appetite to do this, although we will keep pounding them over the head with requests. But NCA has traditionally walked this really unique line between committees of jurisdiction and have really helped to establish and connect between staff and advocates to at least pave the way to get that done a little bit better. And then the third thing is um, that we've all learned a lot over the last couple of years And I believe it's incumbent upon every one of us who works in this system to reflect deeply on our our own values, upon our own role in creating the sort of racial justice that we want to infiltrate the system, acknowledging our own roles in the past and the role that we play now and what the opportunities are to utilize our very diverse experiences and perspectives to create systems that are more fair and more just and do a better job at helping families on the front end so that we we don't see them in CPS. Thank you, Amy. Is there any question that I didn't ask you that you wish I had or anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I think you covered a pretty broad territory and I'm so glad for the opportunity to share some of this and you know maintain some interest on the issue. It's, it's so easy to turn away when you hear about fatalities because it is it is gut-wrenching and each one really does create such multi-generational and systemic trauma. But the truth is that it is the worst possible outcome of our system. And it really, in some ways, fatality prevention should drive all of the other policy and all of the other frameworks around what we do in CPS, because really all of our work should be geared towards preventing that worst outcome and then working back from that. Amen to that, Amy. Thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate you you. coming on 1 in 10. Now we turn to Maine, where a cluster of child abuse fatalities has really tested existing reform efforts and raised issues of transparency and the role of the press in making systems accountable. Hi, Leah and Caitlin. Welcome to the show. Hey, hi. Thanks for having us. I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about what interested you in this story. How did you get into, without going into a lot of detail about the cases themselves, you know, interested in really investigating more or less the child welfare system in Maine? The issue of child welfare in Maine uh, goes way past this year. Um, The thing that is really what started this most recent round of scrutiny was actually in uh, 2017, 2018, there was two high profile child deaths, uh, Marissa Kennedy and Kendall Chick, that really sparked a lot of reform in the state. And so this year, what really kind of got me beyond, you know, just following that as course of a political reporter and healthcare reporter was, of course, the pandemic and trying to understand how it affected this area of state governance. So, When you started looking at this and wondering about what has been the impact of the pandemic on the child welfare system as a whole, did you wind up feeling, though, in the end, that the pandemic was a sort of root cause of this or not? I think one of the challenges that everybody agreed on was that the pandemic made it more difficult to understand what was going on in child welfare, right? You had mandated reporters, you know, the biggest ones of which are often schools, you know, children weren't going there anymore. So you lost a little insight early into how that was going. Um, You know, you saw more children coming into state custody, you saw rates of abuse tick up a little bit. um, But then you also saw the state making a lot of efforts in reunification and metrics of that nature. And I think when I talked to people a lot, there was very much a sense that the pandemic increased a lot of stressors. They're more likely to put families in crisis, you know, like we had employment insecurity, um, you know, you had people cooped up together all the time, you had a lot of stress on these families that were already probably in pretty tight spots. Now, I wouldn't want to say that this cluster of cases that have kind of gotten attention is maybe the cause of that, but certainly those situations didn't help. Leah, tell me a little bit about the cases this summer. You guys had 
in a very short period of time, a series of child abuse fatalities. And I don't want to upset our listeners by going into a necessary great detail about those, but it would be helpful, I think, just to have a kind of an overview of the age of the kids, just overall how those came up and how they came to your attention as a reporter. So I just started actually at the BDN when that happened. I started June 7th, and there were actually two cases around that time. There were four deaths of small children in June. The children were ranged from six weeks to three years old. And in addition to the high number, the thing that stood out to us was that some of them had had prior contact with Child Protective Services or DHHS in another way. We knew that whenever there are a lot of cases in a cluster like this that usually sparks some sort of official oversight. So in this case, it triggered the Department of Health and Human Services contracting with an outside agency to sort of overhaul and oversee their practice. And I believe that's still ongoing. They contracted with Casey Family Services. But we know that whenever a large number of cases like this happens, it triggers some sort of reckoning. And in this case, we knew that since Kendall Chick and Marissa Kennedy's deaths in 2017, 2018, that there had been a lot of recommendations made and undertaken. You know, a lot more staff were hired between 2019 and 2020. 130 people were added to the Office of Child and Family Services. Um, So we were interested in seeing what had happened between then and now to sort of let these kids fall through the cracks, so to speak. DHHS has not really actively confirmed its involvement in all those cases. We know it's been reported that they were involved in at least one, but among at least, I think, three, the other three, we're not quite sure if they had prior contact. I am very familiar with child abuse fatality stats. And, you know, in the U.S., we have about 2,000 every year, you know, spread across 50 states. Many of those states, um, virtually all of them, much more populous than Maine. And so to have a cluster of four in one month is just really an unusual happening. And I can see why it would sort of pique your interest and make you say, gosh, what is going on with this? Talk a little bit about this question about CPS involvement, because it seems like one of the interesting things and that piqued our own interest, and we've seen it come up in other child abuse fatality stories in the past, is the lack of clarity around what was the prior involvement of CPS in all four cases. It seems like you may have ascertained or have ascertained their involvement in one, but you can't even get an answer yes or no on the other three. So can you talk a little bit about that. Sure. There's a lot of confidentiality laws around child welfare, you know, for good reason. And certainly like in state law, that kind of information is protected in Maine. However, there is a caveat that DHHS is allowed to disclose certain information about their involvement in a child case if there is a child death. So far, they Um, Haven't really done that yet, to my knowledge. The way that we kind of understood that there was prior involvement has been largely through police reports. The state has been really careful, I think, like not unsurprisingly, to say whether it had any involvement as there is these investigations going on. But they have done so in a way that I think has been very frustrating to people who are advocates of reform, of people who watch the system very carefully. Um, You know, we saw that, for instance, the Government Oversight Committee, which is a legislative watchdog committee, the um, state's um, OPEGA, which is also their, their kind of like independent watchdog department, had collected together information that had been largely reported in news media outlets rather than something that had been given directly to them by DHHS. Most recently, we saw that the state was hesitant to give information to its child welfare ombudsman, who is a nonprofit entity contracted by the state to basically serve as a clearinghouse for people who have questions about child welfare, but to also, you know, conduct inquiries. Um, And we saw very recently that she had reached out about the first two deaths that we saw to see if there was any case files involved. And DHHS had essentially told her that they had been advised that putting that information out anywhere could jeopardize the investigation if it went to the public sphere, um, which clearly frustrated the ombudsman who was allowed to get that information is required to keep it confidential. Interesting. So, Leah, I'm wondering if, as you were looking at this, 
you know, you were seeing this cluster of cases over the summer, but you also were looking back at the reform efforts that had happened um, following a series of deaths in 2017. And, you know, at the time, I remember in 2017 when you guys had those deaths and there was a big reform effort because, frankly, Maine was really lauded for the reform efforts that followed that. You know, this huge cluster hire of caseworkers really looking at, you know, structured decision making and intake, other kinds of things that really fell out of that. Because, you know, for those of us who've been working on child abuse fatalities for a while, often in a state, nothing happens after a child death. I mean, absolutely nothing. You know, it's like maybe the head of child welfare gets fired or somebody else is a sacrificial lamb, but there's no actual either statutory reform or investment in child welfare. And so I'm just wondering, as you look back, what the issue is. Like when you started looking over the summer and you saw these past efforts, the hiring of caseworkers, the adding supervisors, all of that, how effective or impactful do you believe that has been? Of all the people I spoke to, they said that they welcomed the hiring of more caseworkers, but that it was less to do with hiring more, but also trying to cut down on the amount of turnover. I know that at least of the people I spoke to, they said the turnover was a huge concern. What else? Um, So yeah, like we said, between 2019 and 2020, OCFS hired 130 more staff. um, But at the same time, they also cut down on a number of prevention programs, which would have helped maybe prevent cases from happening before they reached caseworkers' desks. For example, um, the Maine Children's Alliance just launched the Front Porch Project, which is supposed to help train community members in recognizing and intervening in potential neglect and abuse cases. But it's been, it's only funded via private donations after Marissa Kennedy's death. And at the same time, I've spoken to people who've said that the child advocacy councils are not well-funded, which are active in all 16 counties, which help train parents to recognize like what are normal childhood development patterns and how to navigate parenthood. Um, And on top of that, the state also cut funding for a couple of other prevention programs, like the Community Partnerships for Protecting Children program was cut because it supposedly duplicated the work of another state organization. And then also there was the Parents as Partners program, um, which was cut because the state didn't audit and found it didn't noticeably move the needle. But I talked to people who said that it was extremely effective because it paired people as counselors who had already been through the custody system with other families that were currently undergoing that. And of the people I spoke to, they said that it was extremely helpful in helping sort of navigate those problems before it got as bad as it did in June with um, four kids' deaths. So, Caitlin, I'm wondering, as you look over this period of time between 2017 and currently, did you walk away feeling like maybe the state undermined its own efforts in a certain way? I I think that's a good question. I think the state has made some progress on some fronts, like certainly hiring more caseworkers, although like I report um, early this year or late last year said that I think they still need 42 to feel like they can kind of even out their caseloads. You know, I think there's always an effort that you see to try to figure out what works and what doesn't. And if the state feels like it can put more resources into something that it thinks will work, you know, that's something that kind of remains to be seen. I think on the point of hiring more people, you know, it takes time to get people to get up to speed. Um, One of the ombudsman's ongoing kind of criticisms is that the state isn't investing enough into really training its caseworkers well to understand when a child is at risk, which is really kind of like the crux of all of this. Um, And of course, you know, the state disputes that. And I feel like it's difficult to know what kind of a timeline would be like appropriate for that, right? I mean, just had two years ago, these really horrific deaths that kind of changed, well, actually probably closer to three years now, these um, deaths that kind of changed things. You have, you know, of course, there are people who are deeply frustrated Um, some lawmakers who have called even to the point of saying that the Office of Child and Family Services should be broken out into its own department because they think that would better focus its resources. So there seems to be a lot of different theories about what is going to work and what isn't. And I think it's difficult to know, like, if the state 
is going in the right direction when you have something like this happen. Um, you know, certainly one of the criticisms is that they focus too much on quantitative rather than qualitative assessments. And certainly critics have said that the state needs to be doing better and it needs to be doing better faster. I will say one thing that they did that they um, originally reversed course on was that they were going to end their alternative response program, which is where they contract with a group to kind of oversee cases that are not as immediately high risk. They were going to cut that this year because they were going to hire 15 more caseworkers and felt that they could kind of absorb that load. They ended up extending it through 2022 so that it wouldn't cause like staffing funding problems. Um, so that is going to be ongoing. So Leah, what do you find is the good that can be done by the sort of attention that you can bring through your reporting? I would argue that any sort of renewed scrutiny on how child protective services are responding to this is good because it means, you know, there's more eyeballs on something and more likely that experts will spot something that maybe official authorities either can't see or are, I wouldn't say ignoring, but failing to respond to. So overall, what's next for you guys on the story? I mean, I know you can't tell me in detail everything you plan to do, but I'm just saying, how do you intend to follow this in the future? I defer to you, Caitlin. So the Government Oversight Committee last week charged OPEGA with, basically, OPEGA was already going to be doing a follow-up into OFCS. Um, They had a planned survey of workers to get an understanding of how they were feeling about their caseload, about DHHS culture, things along those lines. They basically told them last month to look at what kind of review is not going to be, that they're either to look at the review that they are not already doing and to look at what KC Family uh, Services is going to be doing and find some sort of middle ground where they can conduct some other reviews. So next week, we're going to hear a little bit more about what the state is going to do as a follow-up to this, and that will be certainly very interesting for people to follow. I think an ongoing question is how are caseworkers feeling about this? They're a very challenging demographic to get a hold of. Um, You know, a lot of them are uncomfortable with the idea of speaking because they are um, employed by the state, and so I think like understanding what OPEGA is going to be hearing about that is always an ongoing question. And of course, the Family First Act, which I believe was um, signed into law in 2018, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but the state of Maine was one of the first in the country to submit their plan. I believe they have to have it finalized by October So it'll be very interesting to see what the federal government does with their plan, Uh, they approve it, like what the final thing is going to look like. Um, And of course, we will be keeping our eye out for, you know, any new information about like how the state handled um, these cases, you know, what's next for them in terms of reform, things along that line. Do you think there's going to be another wave of reform? I I do think there will end up being something after Casey Family Services does their work. The level of which that will be, I think, will be very interesting. Certainly, anything that has kind of happened, I mean, the one of the things that we talk about a lot on this level is that it took a lawmaker to kind of push for an inquiry, and I believe the Marissa Kennedy case, it was Representative Patty Hymanson, um, to kind of have a review of those cases that really started all of that. And certainly there are lawmakers who are frustrated with the way things are going over at OFCS um, that have been calling for reform. And I do believe that they will probably bring something forward. Leah, one of the things that I'm wondering about, because I think it comes up in these types of cases just ubiquitously, is sort of the lack of available public information about what happened. Can you talk a little bit about what you would hope in regard to not making sort of information available that's just prurient and for no point, but is there some role in which you feel if there were more information available, it might affect the outcome in the future? I mean, it certainly won't save these poor little ones that have already passed, but would it make a difference in your estimation if more information were available, not just to reporters, but to the general public about these cases? 
I think it would. I think that it would help just general community members to know, like to recognize what are signs of abuse or neglect going forward so that if they're able to recognize certain things before it gets to the point of death or serious injury, that they would be able to intervene and call the appropriate authorities to attention. Well, I just appreciate the fact that you guys have plans to continue to track what is going on, not just with the cases, but overall with reform efforts in the future. I think the media has such an important role in accountability. So as we close out this segment, you know, I just want to ask you, is there anything you wish I had asked you? Let's start with Caitlin. Always a good question. I end all of my interviews the same way. Often, you know, in news, we focus on what's wrong, you know, how do we get here? They all things that are really critical, but I think sometimes we could be really benefited from taking a step back and saying like, well, what's working in other places? You know, what are things that we think could be a good model for our state and for our community that can be really helpful sometimes in moving the conversation forward from not just a, you know, these are uh, to, to be clear, again, they, they are all tragedies, but just this like really dark topic of um, problems with the child welfare system and maybe a more hopeful idea of what could be better or, you know, what has been proven well to work. Leah? I would echo Caitlin as well. Um, I feel like a lot of stories have sort of grabbed onto what's immediately happening, like children's deaths. And I think it would be interesting and helpful to know going forward where states have succeeded, um, where Maine has maybe not. Well, thank you both so much for coming on to One in Ten. I think, you know, we we talk to child abuse experts all the time, but we almost never talk to people who are reporting on the work that we all do. So we just really appreciate your attention to this and we'll continue to watch your reporting um, in Maine and be very interested to hear, you know, what continues to happen, what reform efforts exist as you continue to monitor that situation. So thank you so much again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure, Teresa. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to One in Ten. Join us next time for a conversation with Dr. Stephen Kotza on trauma and military families. And for more information about the podcast, please visit our podcast website at oneintenpodcast.org.